0: Matthew 17, I want you to notice again verse 1 of our text, which, of course, introduces one of the most significant events in all of Christ's ministry. We're all familiar with it. It says, And after six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John, his brother, and bringeth them up into an high mountain apart, apart from all the others, and was transfigured before them, And his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. And, behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elias, Elijah, talking with him. Now, folks, I am certain that most of you know the profound and the very powerful moment that this event was, as designed by the way, and as intended by God. It is impossible for me to overstate or overemphasize how wonderful and how critical this occasion was. I mean, just think about it, right? On that mountain, overlooking Jerusalem, was Elijah, who represented the, law, represented the prophets, Moses, who represented the law, Peter, James, and John, who, of course, represented the New Testament, and the Lord Jesus himself, who all of them wrote about. And then, as the Son of God, the Bible says, is transfigured before them, someone else testifies. Verse 5, And while he, Peter, yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And when the disciples heard it, They fell on their face and were sore afraid. Of course they were. And you know, folks, there you have it, beloved, the perfect testimony of the continuity of God's plan. Moses, Elijah, the disciples, all with the Son of God, overlooking the very place where the Father would fulfill His plan of redemption. And if that's not enough, Notice what Jesus says as the benediction to this whole thing. Verse 9. And as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged or commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no man, here it is, note this, until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. Wow. You talk about a church service. First, they see their greatest prophet, Elijah, and who had been raptured up to God's presence, and then they see Moses, their great deliverer, who had passed away 1,200 years before this into God's presence, and then there is the voice of God from heaven, and then there's this appearance, this glowing, if you will, of eternity. And after all of that, the Lord Jesus tells them that he's going to be resurrected soon from the dead. This is an overwhelming scene that Peter would talk about many decades after the resurrection so that in every way beloved this is the pinnacle this is the highest of the high point that any human could ever witness Matthew 17 is the holiest highest heavenliest event of all time up until this moment so that you know what if I were to write the end of the chapter I would finish with a hallelujah chorus, or amen, or some kind of spiritual grand finale. I would make sure that it concluded with some measure of glory and wonder, but that is not what happens, not even close. You see the last verse of the chapter, verse 27? Just look it over, read it to yourself for a moment. What's it talking about? What is it that Jesus himself, who was just in the Father's presence, is compelled to discuss? Well, you see it, taxes. Matthew, who's writing this, was a tax collector. And you'll notice in the verse that he calls it, quote, a piece of money. I tell you, you've got to wonder if Matthew wasn't a little bit embarrassed After just writing about all of that glory that now he has to put on parchment that Jesus dealt with tribute to Caesar. From Elias to the IRS. From eternity to liability. From glory to gory. And if you're wondering this morning if there's a reason, if there's a message in all of this, then you can rest assured that God doesn't do anything by accident. Let's pray. Father, please help us this morning to hear your word, your word, the truth of your word. Please speak to our hearts, correct our thinking, help us in our walk in this present time. In Jesus' name, amen. There are four things I want us to consider this morning from our text, any one of which, by the way, we could take for the entire message, but all of which sort of combine to remind us of truths we simply cannot miss in this day and age. And the first thing I want you to notice, number one, is the word taste. You'll notice that chapter 17 begins, look at it, with the word and, and after six days. In other words, this chapter is a continuation of chapter 16, and what's the last verse of chapter 16? Verse 28, look at it, verily I say unto you, to the disciples, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And after six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John. By the way, as we've noted in the past, there have been those, ah, millennialists and others, who teach that according to Jesus' promise here, the kingdom of God had already come. It came during his lifetime with some of the disciples. Unfortunately, they leave out the immediate context. Jesus had just said that some of you, some of his apostles, would see the kingdom of God with power. And sure enough, he takes some of them, Peter, James, and John, up to a mountain to indeed see the kingdom of God with power. And you know, in all three accounts of this story in the other three Gospels, it includes in the same chapter, some don't have the chapter divisions here as it does here, the Lord uses the word taste. They would not taste death. Until effectively, they'd also tasted the kingdom with power. And of course, the taste that included this amazing privilege of seeing Jesus transfigured before their eyes, hearing the voice of the Father from heaven itself, talking with none other than Elijah and Moses. What an experience. What a glory. What a privilege. And yes, what a blessing. The very expression mountaintop experience is derived from this moment. They are truly on the top of the world. The Apostle Peter would later, when he's writing his epistle, refer to this as, quote, a moment of majesty and excellent glory. Thirty years later, he would call Mount Tabor, quote, the holy mount. Why? Because this was a great, glorious experience. On the other hand, Peter also said about this very same experience that we have in the Bible an even greater taste of the kingdom of God. Peter said that we have something better than a vision or an experience including his own vision and his own experience that he himself wrote about. You see folks, recollections of experiences can change with time. The way I remember it, honestly, I intercepted a pass and I ran at 75 yards for a touchdown. The way my dad always remembered it was that I fumbled it on the five-yard line. Our recollections change, but this book never changes. And of course, beloved, the lesson and the point is this. You have the presence, the very presence of Christ today, according to his promise. We have the fulfilled, completed word of God, we have access into the very holy of holies. We have every single day a taste of God's kingdom. So that Peter meant it. He meant it under inspiration of the Holy Spirit when he said that we have, quote, a more sure word of prophecy right here in this book than his own personal experience on that mountain. As Paul wrote, God has blessed us with all spiritual blessings and heavenly places in Christ. Ephesians 1-3. And again, this is not the Millennial Kingdom. We're not in Millennial Kingdom. Just look who's sitting on the throne of the White House, for example, right now. We're not living in the sweet by and by. It's sometimes the nasty here and now. But in the midst of all of this, we have access into glory. We have the voice of God in this word. We have the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ according to his promise. We have the power of the Holy Spirit so that we are being changed from glory to glory. The descriptive name that is given in Scripture for believers who live in the fall of 2023 is overcomer. That's what God calls us, overcomer. Okay, the first day of fall is in two weeks, I'm sorry. So, in the summer of 2023 and the soon coming fall. We don't see the glorified Christ, not necessarily, with His raiment, white, and glistening as the disciples did. Not yet. But, we have been enlightened. And we have seen the spiritual light of the gospel so that, hey, you want a mountaintops spiritual experience? Every believer has a taste of the same. In the prayer closet, at a camp, at an altar, during a revival, leading someone to Christ. During baptism or sometimes during communion, during your own quiet time, the moment of salvation itself at some divine intersection when you know God brought you to that moment. Every Christian has had times of spiritual joy and victory and blessing that is a taste of the kingdom that is to come. That taste is a wonderful and welcome blessing. It is the same faith-building moment that Christ gave to these men knowing he would need it. They would need it. But note this, because that leads us to the second thing. We said number one is taste. Number two, you'll notice, is test. Go back to verse 5, would you? And while he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased Hear ye him. In other words, understandably, Peter wanted another Friday night at the wilds. Go back to verse 4. Peter answered, answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, if it's your will, let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He wanted another night of this. He wanted another Thursday night at PCC or a Wednesday night at VBS or a Saturday at ladies' conference or, or a Sunday, the day you got saved or you were baptized to laugh. He wanted this to go on and laugh maybe another week. I remember whenever we took a family vacation, wherever it was, I can remember always I'd find myself counting down right after the first day and lamenting, oh man, we only have five days left. And later, it's like, man, two days, it's going by way too fast. I used to think that on the golf course. I used to think, oh man, it's already the 15th hole. Young Jim would say, only four holes left? What? Now it's more like, are you kidding? I've played 14. Can we just call it quits and put par, par, birdie, eagle? That's fair, and I'm done. But there was a time I didn't want it to end. This is exactly what Peter experiences and expresses when he blurts out this suggestion. Hey, let's build some tabernacles. Let's all camp out. What did he say? Lord, it is good. It is good for us to be here. The other Gospels tells us that Peter wist not what to say, for he was sore afraid. He didn't know what to say, so that's what he blurted out. He just said the very first thing that came to his mind. And I imagine Moses and Elijah looked at each other like, tense. We're going to stay here. I don't blame Peter. Hearing God's voice. Seeing the other side. Beholding a glorified Christ. Looking at Moses and Elijah. I mean, nothing on this earth, nothing in this world could ever compare to that. And yet, inasmuch as as Peter wanted this experience to go on and on, he didn't realize, the Bible says, he wished not, he didn't realize what he was saying. And specifically... He didn't understand yet. He didn't realize they were only there to be tasting the kingdom of God for a reason. Because here's the test. He's going to realize why he was there in a few hours when a cold slap of reality hits him at the very bottom of this mountain. What do you mean, Pastor? Look at verse 14, would you? And when they were come to the multitude. uh Uh-oh. The multitude. Can I ask you a question? What do you suppose that this multitude of people are going to do when Jesus descends and the apostles descend from this holy mountain? Why are all these people down there waiting? Suppose they'll welcome the Lord and the disciples with songs of praise and shouts of joy. Do you suppose that they're going to encourage these disciples, encourage the Lord Jesus with their victorious faith and their spiritual courage? Verse 14. And when they were come to the multitude, there came to him a certain man kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic. I've prayed that prayer many times about my voice. (laughs) Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic. And sore vexed, for oft times he falleth into the fire and oft into the water. And I brought him to thy disciples, and they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, look at these words. Oh, faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer or allow you? Bring him hither to me. Pastor, why? Why was the Lord so burdened and short with his disciples? Because most people can't cast out demons. Why would he be so upset with it? I can tell you why. I'm going to read it to you. Because in a few chapters before this, it says this in Matthew. And when he had called unto him his 12 disciples, he gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. That's why Jesus was burdened. That's why he said, faithless, they could do this. So yes, beloved, the multitude is a reminder of the big difference between the high harmonies of the mountain and the low discord of the valley. There's a big difference between fellowshipping with Elijah and Moses and having to deal with demons and disciples who doubt. Can you imagine what Moses and Elijah must be thinking about this? because they're there in fact if you read the other gospels they're talking to Jesus about the crucifixion they're talking about his his the the word there's exodus Moses and his exodus talking to Jesus about his exodus that's what they were talking about and they're standing there and I wonder what they're thinking because I'll remind you that both of those men had mountaintop experiences of their own Elijah on Mount Carmel And when Elijah came down from that glory, he immediately got depressed over Jezebel. Moses on Mount Sinai. He spent time communing with God face to face. He had just come from what was called holy ground so that his face was literally glowing that people could see it. But what happened? He came back down the mountain. And when he came down to earth, there's his own brother and the people of God dancing and worshiping the idols of Egypt. And Moses realized it's going to be a long, long journey in the desert with these people. I've often wondered if Moses didn't look at those three disciples whose faces were astonished, who were experiencing this glory And Moses thinks to himself, boys, just wait till you get to the bottom. Because he knows, and it is true, that as soon as Peter and James and John came down from that mountain, literally at that moment and for the rest of their lives, people would tug on them. Temptation would tug on them. Satan would tug at them. The church itself would be tugging constantly, wanting an answer, wanting another need to be met, wanting provision. So that for the rest of their lives, and it wouldn't be long for James, as you know. They would be living and ministering in the valley of need. I'll say it again, the Mount of Transfiguration, that was glorious. There were no problems up there. There were no taxes up there. No sickness, no sin to deal with, no scribes or faithless people to deal with in every way. It was a taste of the kingdom of God. But down here, no sooner had Jesus' feet touched the bottom of the hill that immediately he's met by a multitude of sinners. And immediately, one man in that company brings out and cries for a miracle for his only child, who's demon possessed, and immediately his own disciples are found to be helpless and defeated and without faith. So that, yes it's a test it's a trial but not just a test at the bottom of the mountain it is also for their sakes the perfect will of God please hear this God did not call Peter or James or John into glory yet in fact God didn't even call his own son into glory yet we talk about and sing the song down from his glory he actually did that twice He came down from heaven the first time when he was born. He went back to glory in this moment, and he has to come back down the mountain, knowing exactly what he's got to do. The test of discipleship and faithfulness is not how well you do on the mountain. These pews could be filled over five times with Christians who used to be here who who always do well on the mountain. It's how you do in the valley. Because it is a valley that includes all of the frustrations and failures and foolishness that you would expect from this flesh. But, Pastor, I'm disappointed. Don't you think our Lord was disappointed? In fact, do you know what else he had to deal with at the bottom of that mountain? Look at chapter 19 for a moment, would you? I want you to read this with me. It's almost unbelievable to read these verses, but this is what he had to deal with. Chapter 19, verse 27, then answered Peter and said unto him, Behold, we have forsaken all and followed thee. What shall we have therefore? What's in it for us, Jesus? That's it all. Cross the page, chapter 20. Look at verse 20. Then came to him the mother of Zebedee's children with her sons, Worshiping him and desiring a certain thing. And he said unto her, What wilt thou? She saith unto him, Grant that these my two sons may sit the one on the right hand and the other on the left in the kingdom. What? It says in verse 24 that when the other disciples heard that, they were full of wrath. Jesus had just told them. They had just been bickering about who would be the greatest in the kingdom. And guess, just take a guess, the sons of this woman who started all of this bickering. Who started the complaining and grinding about who would be the greatest in the kingdom in spite of being told, Blessed are the meek, just before this? It's the same men that went up the mountain. It's Peter and James and John. Of course, someone's disappointed in you. And of course, you're disappointed in other people. Welcome to the valley of earth. Welcome to a test of your love, your devotion and your loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ, which brings me to the third lesson in the text. Number one is taste. Number two is test. Number three, consider the word task. Go back to chapter 17 with me, would you please? Chapter 17, notice verse 9. And as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, saying, tell the vision to no man, until, you can tell about it, you can write about it, until the Son of Man... Be risen again from what? The dead. The dead. Now, beloved, I want you to remember something very carefully about this text. Our Lord Jesus came down from that mountain because he had a calling. He had a mission. He had an assignment. He had a task that was motivated by his love. He came down to do and to finish the will of God. He had already, in the chapter before this, told his disciples specifically that he would be scourged and mocked and spit upon and crucified. And then on the third day, he shall rise again. So here's what's happening in this moment. Here's actually what's going on. God brought Jesus up here to strengthen him and those disciples for the task down here. So that he would be raised to reign up here for all of eternity. This task, our Lord Jesus completed. That's why we sang a moment ago, there is a fountain filled with blood. And now he has what you might call a task force. That's you and me. And sometimes the Lord brings us up here. Those are moments to encourage us, to strengthen us for the task down here. So that one day we'll be raised to serve up here for all of eternity. The question is this. The only question is, are we faithful? Are we growing? And that brings us to the last truth. Number one, taste. Number two, test. Number three, task. Number four, please notice, trust. Do not overlook, please, The unmistakable connection between verse 5 and verses 7 and 9. Look at verse 5. While he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed. Peter is speaking. God interrupts him. While he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased here Ye him. Wow. Follow this. Follow this carefully. The voice of God, the Father, thunders down from heaven itself and he only has one message. Of all the things the Father could say in this one moment, he only has one message. This is my beloved Son. Hear ye him. Listen to him. So I have a question. What is the Son of God, the beloved Son with whom God is well? pleased? what's he going to say? What are they supposed to listen to? What does he say right after this? Verse 7 is first. And Jesus came and touched them, the disciples, and said, Arise and be not afraid. Have you ever noticed that Jesus is always telling his disciples and us not to be afraid? Okay. Hear ye him. Fear not, Jesus said. Fear not, hear ye him. The voice of the Father from heaven, this is my beloved Son, hear ye him. What's he say? Don't be afraid. That's not all. Verse 9, And as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, saying, Tell the vision to no man until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. Now, folks, think about this a minute. This is my beloved Son, hear him. This is a moment when talking about getting attention, someone's attention, they had... God had their attention. This is my beloved son. Hear him. What's he say? Don't be afraid. I'm going to rise again. Don't be afraid. I will live again. And what does that mean? Everything you just saw is real and eternal and true. Folks, back when I was in seminary, I had to read these books. All these books on philosophy and the various even and karma and the absorption into the infinite impersonal brahma which is just self extinction and the more i read about achieving some far off emancipation into a beatific oblivion and reincarnation the more depressed, the more depressing it sounded who wants to be absorbed into some cycle of samsara Who wants to transmigrate into another form of matter in a far-off universe and glow like some planetary moon for a million years? I'd rather see my dad and Louise and my sister and all of our beacon loved ones, hundreds and hundreds of them up there, and our Lord Jesus. I would rather learn the mysteries and the glories of God's creation than to be a rock in that creation. I want to hear music and praise and experience the love and the joy of being with Jesus Himself. You see, folks, Moses and Elijah did not die and then come back and appear to the 12 apostles later as a cow or a tree or a monkey. And our Lord did not tell Peter and James to look up at the stars. Notice the two bright ones right there by Orion's belt. That's Moses and Elijah. That's them. Those are the stars ages ago. Now you've seen the kingdom of God. And there's John squinting his eyes and looking at those stars that are Moses and Elijah. And he hears a voice Simba. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) That's, That's Rafiki theology. What the Lord of glory, the Creator Himself, revealed to these men and to us is that in eternity, Elijah and Moses are still Elijah and Moses. They're still men. The Bible, the text says, when they saw no man, they're still people, men. They haven't become cherubim and seraphim, they don't have wings, they didn't become spirit animal or an apparition of the summer land or some such thing. No, no, no. They were Moses and Elijah. And you know what they did there? They fellowshiped with Jesus. They talked about his upcoming exodus, his death. They were conscious. They deliberated. And Jesus said, because I'm going to die and be resurrected, all of this is real. All of this, if you believe on me, is your reality. So, you know, when they came down that mountain, if they did what the Father said, hear ye Him, that's all they needed to do. Listen to Him. Now, we know what happens later. Later on, Jesus is crucified, and they're cowering in fear, and they're sorrowing, and they're like, we don't know what's going to happen. The disciples on the road to Emmaus, Jesus is walking with them, resurrected, and He says, didn't you listen? Hear ye Him. Pastor, how am I going to make it in this world? This world's crazy. And it's getting crazier by the second now. How am I, as a Christian, going to get? Hear ye him. Here it is. Listen. He's alive. He rose again. He has a kingdom. It's eternal. If you know him, you're going there for eternity. Forever and ever and ever. So, does it really matter about that fender bender or who's sitting in the White House? hear ye him. You have a task. I have a task. Let's do it. Yes. Yes. Sometimes it's tough. And there are people that will come to you and they're little demon-possessed peoples. And they'll be foaming in the mouth and you'll say, this is my lunatic son. That's when you should just think about, you know what, let me remember, what did Jesus say? Don't be afraid. That's what God told me to listen to. Don't be afraid. He's going to rise again. And He did. And because he rose again, my salvation is real and true. And God's people said. Heads are bowed, please, eyes are closed. This event on the Mount of Transfiguration recorded in three of the Gospels is not just a story. It was an event that God designed, planned and completed for our learning and our admonition. If you're here today and you're saved, it's a reminder that God, no, we don't live on the Mount of Transfiguration. Most of our days are spent. We preached many years ago a sermon called the Everyday Days in the plain, in the plain or in the valley. That's normal. But God gives you strength and grace to live faithfully and victoriously there. Pastor, I'm a Christian, I'm a child of God, but I need this reminder. Maybe it was about trusting, maybe it was about your task, the test. Whatever it was, if God is speaking to your heart, say, Pastor, that's me, I'm saved, but I needed this message today, and God has spoken to my heart. Who would say that with uplifted hands, and amen, and amen, and God bless you all. Praise the Lord for that. That's why God calls you an overcomer. You're an overcomer, it's who you are. You overcome this world by faith, by hearing him and believing it some in this room undoubtedly and watching undoubtedly on live stream some are not saved you see the task that they had after the resurrection and when they came down from the mountain was to to preach the gospel that means good news that means that Jesus God's son died for your sins shed his blood was buried rose again is now in heaven and he is ready to save you from your sins he has the power to save you because he died for your sins and if you're here today and you're not sure that you're saved, could we just pray for you? I won't come and embarrass you, but we would love to pray for you today. Pastor Blalock, that's me. I don't know for certain that my sins are forgiven, that, I, that heaven's my home, but I would like to know it. I need to know it. Who would say that? With heads bowed, eyes closed. Would you lift your hand right where you are, and we'll pray for you. Hold it up there high enough. Yes. Amen. Anyone else? And if you're at home, raise your hand. God bless you, sir, as well. We're going to pray in a moment and have a time of invitation. It may be... The Lord is leading you to a public decision, such as baptism or joining the church. I encourage you to come forward and speak with Andrew here at the front. If you're not sure about your salvation, we would love to pray with you, show you scriptures so that you can be sure. Whatever God is speaking to your, your heart about, obey his voice. Won't you leave these doors, leave these doors as the overcomer, victorious because of who God is in you. Father, bless the invitation as we commit it into your hands. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for this amazing event, but no more amazing, Peter said, than the sure word of prophecy we have in our hands. Thank you for this amazing event, but no more amazing than the glory that awaits all of your children, all of us in this room who are saved for all of eternity. May it teach us, may it encourage us, may it strengthen us to do your will. In Jesus' name we pray.